George Harrison, a guitarist for the Beatles, was a Bhakti Hindu. He believed in a personal god, and he said that if one chants the mantras with devotion, Lord Krishna would visibly appear and speak to him in an audible voice. Many pagans are similarly convinced of having met their deities, too. For example, a cat fancier in Texas insists he began worshipping Bast only after the Egyptian goddess dramatically appeared, physically manifest, having personally chosen him to become her disciple. The Chinese religion is a mixture of Confucianism, Taoism, Buddhism, polytheism, and ancestor worship. Devotees of this blend of traditions are capable of remarkable feats of faith, and many of them claim direct communication with their gods and spirits as well. All of these different believers, and some Buddhists too, talk about their spiritual rebirth once they accept whichever deity into their lives. Every religion boasts their own miracles and prophecies, proving theirs is the truest faith. So it's no surprise that Christians say the same things about their versions of God too. No religion is significantly different from any other in this respect, but whatever else may be going on, when men claim revelation from God, it usually means that they've decided to promote their own biased and unsubstantiated opinions as if they were divinely inspired. So it's not like any one true God is really guiding all these people the way they all insist he, she, they, or it is. If any God exists, and it happens that there's only one of them, then surely every spiritually enlightened and visionary holy man from any nation or tribe should be able to sense it, if men can sense such things at all, and their scribes would write the scrolls seeking to make sense of it, however feeble an attempt that may be. Perhaps that's why there are so many different religions, because no man can know the true state of God. There can only be one truth and only one version of it, but rather than coming together, as everyone's search for the one truth should, religions continuously shard further and further apart into more divided factions with mutually exclusive beliefs, and there are as many wrong interpretations as there are people claiming theirs as the absolute truth. Which brings us to the third foundational falsehood of creationism. The assertion that any human's understanding of their various internally conflicting and intercontradictory beliefs should or even could be considered infallible or inherently accurate. In reality, there is no such thing as absolute truth. Everything within the capacity of human understanding contains a degree of error, and everything men know to be true is only true to a degree. Everyone is inevitably wrong about something somewhere. We don't know everything about everything. We don't know everything about anything, and what we do know, we don't know accurately on all points, nor completely in every detail. Honest men admit this. Anyone claiming to know the absolute truth is not being honest, especially not when they claim to know anything about things which can only be believed on faith. Even if men were given genuine revelations by truly omniscient beings, they must still be filtered and interpreted by weaker minds influenced by our limitations, biases, and misimpressions, as well as linguistic and cultural barriers. In the history of history itself, no account human journalists have ever given has been absolutely complete, inerrant, and perfectly accurate, especially not when there is a desperate emotional bias such as there is at the source of each of the world's religious books. All of them were written decades or centuries after the alleged events they claim to have witnessed, and they speak of many scenes that no one could have witnessed at all. Some of them, like the Bhagavad Gita and much of the Torah, were originally written as poetry, so the conversations can't have been verbatim unless the characters really spoke in rhyme. These tales include impossible absurdities which can't even be corroborated by any other contributors internally, much less external records. No matter how many witnesses there supposedly were, or how many historians should have known about it, the only source for any of the fables in the Bible is the Bible itself. Archaeology certainly doesn't support any of these stories. Instead, we have many earlier versions of many of them coming from the myriad myths of polytheism, some of which written by the very ancestors of the biblical authors. 
They apparently conceived all the original but as yet unassociated elements, which were eventually blended together into the fables we now know as Genesis. These stories can be interpreted wildly differently by anyone who reads them. Some argue that the Bible doesn't really say some of the things we can prove that it does, while others are convinced that it clearly does say things that it doesn't really even hint at anywhere. For example, the idea that there was no death before the fall. The Bible doesn't say that. In fact, it says there was death before the fall because Adam and Eve had to ingest and digest living cells in order to survive, the very definition of what it means to be an animal. The only way around that was to eat the fruit of the tree of eternal life, which directly contradicts the creationist interpretation because it wouldn't need to be there if they already had eternal life. It is an obvious metaphor representing a choice, perhaps between innocence and responsibility. That too is an interpretation, but it obviously was not an actual deciduous plant. The Council of Nicaea gathered theologians from all over the Roman Empire trying to interpret what their scriptures meant rather than what they said. One of the central points of dispute was whether Jesus was who he said he was, or whether he was secretly God instead. Those trying to reconcile contradictions between the Old and New Testaments may have borrowed concepts of the Trinitarian gods and avatars from the Hindus. In the Bhagavad Gita, Lord Krishna said he was the creator of the world and God in the flesh, an avatar of Vishnu. But in the Gospels, which are the only documents claiming to record the Christ's actual words, Jesus never implied any of that at all. Jesus only did what Akhenaten did, promote himself as the sole prophet of the sun god. At one point Jesus says he is one with God, but he clarifies that he is referring only to his purpose, and he says that any of us might become one with God just as he is, and that we may perform even greater miracles than he did. But throughout the Bible, regardless whatever else he may claim about himself, Jesus always only ever described himself as separate from and subordinate to El Allah Abba Yahweh. And he said that the God of Abraham and the bringer of the flood was someone else, somewhere else, who knows things Jesus doesn't know, can do things Jesus can't do, and who did things Jesus didn't do but only witnessed, like creating the world. Jesus also spoke about God in third person and to God in second person, and in one scene, God talks about Jesus in third person too, when he introduced his son to the Jews. Then the Holy Ghost showed up and led Jesus to somewhere Jesus did not already know. None of this could be if Jesus were an avatar or God in the flesh, because then Jesus and God and the Holy Ghost would all still share the same knowledge, power, identity, and position in space and time. So it is pretty clear that Jesus did not believe himself to be the same God as the one he and the Jews both worshipped. When the Nicene Creed was being conceived, the committee took a vote on the identity and divinity of Jesus. Even that was subject to interpretation. Those who said Jesus was a prophet of God but not the same essence as God lost the vote and were banished to prevent their ideas from influencing the Christian formation. For a time, both sides labeled the others heretics. If the Bible is interpreted literally, then it is clear that its authors believed that the world was a flat disk which was originally said to be covered by a giant crystal dome. It was a common belief at that time in all the neighboring regions, but it was still wrong. The biblical authors obviously knew nothing about the real state of this world, nor the worlds beyond this one either, but we know what lies outside our atmosphere, and that proves that there is no water above where the firmament isn't, and no windows to let it drain in if there was either water or firmament there. Some Persians at that time said that the god Mithras had the stars sewn into the lining of his cloak, which he would drape over the crystalline firmament to bring on the night. But we know that night is not a veil to be spread over the missing firmament like a curtain or a tent. We also know that the stars are not made to stand in the span of this expanse because they are not high in the firmament. 
There is no firmament, and they are so far beyond our puny world that height is meaningless and inapplicable. They are much too far away to be blown out of place by any storm, and they couldn't be taken down by anything at all. We've also proven that the elusive heavenly firmament has no foundations, either, and neither does the earth. There are no pillars holding the earth above the deep, because there is no deep. Outer space is not full of water. We also know what lies outside our gravitational field, and that proves that you can't have any passage of days or nights without a sun to measure them against an earth which constantly moves. We also know that the sun cannot be made to set at noon, and that neither the sun nor the moon can be stopped in the sky. We also know what is beyond our solar system, and that proves that the stars can't fall from the sky, and even if they did, we still couldn't stomp on them because they reach millions of miles around, which makes it a bit silly to imagine a whole group of them having conscious minds and ganging up in combat with a mere human being. We even know what lies beyond our galaxy, and that proves that nothing or no one could ever seal up the stars. We also know that the Earth, with its fictitious firmament, didn't predate the lights in the heavens by any amount of time, and that the stars weren't set specifically to light the Earth, because the Earth is not at the center or the beginning of the universe in any respect. The way the Bible depicts the Earth in relation to the rest of the universe is wrong, and has been known to be wrong for thousands of years. Many creationists say that it is impossible to understand or believe the Bible unless it is read in the spirit of the Holy Ghost. In other words, you must already assume its truth before you read it, and you have to read it through filters of faith, because it certainly isn't compelling on its own without those blinders on. If it doesn't make sense, then you've got to convince yourself that you must not understand it properly, and you've just got to try to make yourself believe it anyway, somehow. That is precisely why creationist faith is deemed dogmatic. But it is also proof by admission that even a literal reading must be interpreted. So its very design is such that the Bible cannot be either inerrant or absolute truth. The next in our series of foundational falsehoods of creationism is a logical fallacy illustrative of the fundamental sophistry behind the creationism movement. The idea that really, really believing something is the same thing as knowing it. Every religion claims to believe as they do because of reason, education, or intelligence given by their God in Revelation. But whether they admit it or not, all of them are assuming their preferred conclusions on faith, and this would still be true even if all of their gods exist. Believe as hard as you want to, but convincing yourself, however firmly, still can't change the reality of things. Seeing is believing, but seeing isn't knowing. Believing isn't knowing. Subjective convictions are meaningless in science, and eyewitness testimony is the least reliable form of evidence. For example, if I go into my front yard and I see a large sauropod walking down the middle of my street, I will of course be quite convinced of what I see. I may even be more satisfied when I follow the thing and find that I can touch it, maybe even ride it if I want to. When I gather sense enough to run back for my camcorder, I may not be able to find the beast again because I don't know which way it went. But that doesn't matter because I saw it, I heard it, felt it, smelt it, and I remember all that clearly with a sober and rational mind. But somehow... I'm the only one who ever noticed it, and of course no one believes me. Some other guy says he saw a dinosaur too, but his description was completely different, such that we can't both be talking about the same thing. So it doesn't matter how convinced I am that it really happened. It might not have. When days go by and there are still no tracks, no excrement, no destruction, no sign of the beast at all, no other witnesses whose testimony lends credence to mine, and no explanation for how a 20-meter-long dinosaur could just disappear in the suburbs of a major metropolis, 
much less how it could have appeared there in the first place, then it becomes much easier to explain how there could be only two witnesses who can't agree on what they think they saw than it is to explain all the impossibilities against that dinosaur ever really being there. Positive claims require positive evidence. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, and that's what I'd need, since what I propose isn't just extraordinary, it's impossible. But since there's not one fact I can show that anyone can measure or otherwise confirm, then my perspective is still subjective and thus uncertain. Eventually, even I, the eyewitness, would have to admit that although I did see it, I still don't know if it was ever really there, regardless whether I still believe that it was. I'm a geoscience major at the University of Texas. I'm a student of paleontology, which, if you don't know, is the study of ancient life forms. We're always finding new things in the fossil record. That record is already much more rich than any layman would ever suspect, and some of the many things we found there are pretty weird. So all kinds of things might be there, including this. I call it Godzillasaurus Dios. Is it possible that this once existed? Well, to be philosophically correct, I would have to say yes. It is technically possible this form of Lepidosaur actually could have existed, and I concede that it is even conceivable that we could find it in the fossil record someday. But let's forget what is possible and concentrate on what is probable. Is there any reason to believe this particular gargantuan lizard actually did exist? No, nothing at all. I mean, there were several old folklorish movies about it, and there are a heck of a lot of Keju fans who would love it if this thing were really real once. But apart from some fanatic devotees and their beloved fiction, what evidence is there for Godzilla? Not one thing which can be verified by anyone. Consequently, there is every indication that the King of the Monsters is just a made-up character. If I found a five-toed footprint the size of a whole T-Rex, that at least would be something, but it still wouldn't be enough to justify the illustration, would it? I would need volumes more evidence than that. I mean, how can I claim to know all these details about something I can't even show was ever real? Especially if I have no reason to imagine such a thing in the first place. Still, I live in a country where I have a constitutionally guaranteed freedom to believe whatever I want, and I'd really like to believe that something like this existed once. No one can conclusively prove that no extinct reptile could have looked like this, right? We'll never discover every species that ever lived, and absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, so don't I still get to believe Godzilla was real if I want to? What if I then went on to list all sorts of other details I supposedly knew about Godzilla Soros? what color it was, or what its reproductive peculiarities were, or the unique way it would respond to certain stimuli. And I say all this as if I had the facts and test results necessary to prove each point, when I really don't have any indication that anything like this ever even lived at all. What if I still didn't stop there? What if I didn't just say Gojira could have existed? Given the utter lack of evidence, just that comment alone might have cost me my credibility as a scientist. If I even said he probably existed, my reputation would be ruined because I can't substantiate that claim. But let's say I went several steps beyond too far and stated flat out that he did exist. Not that I think he existed or that I believe that he did, but that I knew he did. What happens to my credibility then? Can one even say something like that and still be trusted anymore? If I have no positively indicative evidence at all to back me up and thus can't prove I'm right about anything I profess to know, then if I go ahead anyway and confidently posit that Godzilla Saurus did in fact roam the Japanese islands two million years ago, would that be an honest claim? Normally, anyone disreputable enough to flatly affirm such positive proclamations without adequate support would lose the respect of his peers and be accused of outright fraud. Anyone but a religious advocate, that is. 
When allegedly holy men do the exact same thing, then it's not called fraud anymore. It's called revealed truth instead. It's quite a double standard, isn't it? Like when some minister gets on stage at one of those stadium-sized churches to state as fact who God is and what God is and what he wants, hates, needs, won't tolerate, or will do, for whom, how, and under what conditions, they don't have any data to show they're correct about any of it. Yet they speak so matter-of-factly, even when they contradict each other, they're still completely confident in their own empty assertions. So why do none of these tens of thousands of head-bobbing, mouth-breathing, glassy-eyed wanna-believers have the presence of mind to ask, how do you know that? Well, for those of you who never asked the question, here's the answer. They don't know that. There's no way anyone could know these things. They're making it up as they go along. These sermons are the best possible example of blind speculation asserted as though it were truth and sold for tithe. If anyone or everyone else would be called liars for claiming such things without any evidentiary basis, then why make exceptions for evangelists? For these charlatans are obviously liars too. The clergy are in the same category of questionable credibility as our commissioned salesmen, politicians, and military recruiters. You could raise a community of children to believe in Cthulhu if you always insist that he's true. If you make them worship him regularly and pray to him in fear, begging for signs or impressions revealing his existence to them, then at least some of those children will eventually claim to have experienced that God, despite the fact that he only ever existed in fiction. Occultists, transcendentalists, and faith healers of every religion know the auto-deceptive power of faith. It doesn't matter which gods or spirits they pray to, no matter which devotion one practices, if the ambiance of the ritual is right, then faith can prepare the mind and psych the senses into perceiving or experiencing whatever the subjects want to believe. Seemingly miraculous feats and visions occur in every faith because faith itself is the cause of them rather than whatever devotees may have faith in. That has to be the case because faith is the only common bond between all religious beliefs. Believers often say they know for a fact that their beliefs are the truth. They testify to things they don't know anything about, they pretend to witness things they've never really seen, and they like to use other confident-sounding terms like conclusively proven when they're really only talking about baseless assumptions, and vice versa. They often claim absolute truth when they're really talking about bald-faced lies, and all too often they will continue to repeat and appeal to arguments they know have already been proven wrong. But if you believe in truth at all, then you should make sure that the things you say actually are true, that they are defensively accurate and academically correct, and that if they're not correct, you should correct them. You wouldn't claim to know anything you couldn't prove that you knew, and you wouldn't talk about anything being proven at all unless you're clearly using that term in the sense that a court of law would use. Scientists must choose their words very carefully because science is brutal in peer review, and no scientist would ever get away with any of the wild, raving propaganda which religious zealots and the news media use. That's why they say the devil is in the details. First of all, Truth is more than just facts. It implies something that is completely true, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So every word of it better be accurate or it isn't truth at all, and depending on the topic, such a concept is likely beyond human comprehension anyway. Truth may be pursued, but never possessed. That's why we should trust only those who seek the truth and doubt those who claim to have it. A fact is a unit of information that is verifiably true beyond dispute, and obviously beliefs based on the conflicting faiths of different religions cannot qualify as that. Belief may be either rational or assumed on faith, but in either case, it doesn't matter how convinced you are. Belief does not equal knowledge. The difference is that knowledge can always be tested for accuracy where mere beliefs often cannot be. 
No matter how positively you think you know it, if you can't show it, then you don't know it, and you shouldn't say that you do. Nor would you if you really cared about the truth. Knowledge is demonstrable, measurable, but faith is often a matter of pretending to know what you know you really don't know, and that no one even can know, and which you merely believe, often for no good reason at all. 